Well, what, what we're doing uh, this uh, fall is we are looking at the book of 1 Peter. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, you know that we're calling uh, this sermon series Exiles, Living on the Margins. And so we're only three sermons into this, uh, this little short letter of 1 Peter. But let me just give you some background as we just get started. Uh, the, 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. He's writing this letter to Christians who were forcibly relocated from their homes. They are being forcibly resettled into the area, ancient area that we call as Turkey today. And as uh, they were forcibly relocated, they were relocated due to their faith. They faced intimidation. They were harassed. They were mocked. They were hated for uh, their faith. And so... And this is because Christians did not participate in, like, the civil religion that other good Romans did. They didn't worship the emperor. They didn't uh, purchase food that was offered to idols. They didn't do those type of things. And also, as you look at the, the church, the church was a very different community than all the other communities around them. For example, men hung out with women. For another example, slaves would be, be next to uh, business owners. Citizens would be next to slaves as well. But we would also see that the church was multi-ethnic. It was multicultural. Where people, Jews and Greeks, Scythians, were all together. And the church is a different community. And so the Roman government persecuted them for that. And perhaps actually persecuted, persecuted is too strong of a word at this specific point. They were... Actually, the Roman government was marginalizing Christians for their faith. And what I mean by that is that here's Christians, and they, they would look at their faith, and they saw that they were being pushed to the periphery of life. Here they are being forcibly relocated for their faith. And so Peter is trying to encourage them with uh, the good news. He's trying to encourage them with the gospel. And we have been looking at this. And so today we're looking at 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 22 into chapter 2, verse 3. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your worship guide or on the walls uh, beside me. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the, the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is, and this is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day. And we, as we come now to your word. We ask that you would speak to us. May your spirit be at work in our hearts, and as we listen to your word, may we see how we are to live in light of, how, of what your son has done for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Names and nicknames reveal something about someone or someplace. And names and nicknames also carry certain expectations with them. For example, take Pittsburgh. 
as an example. It's known as the city of bridges, and that's because it has more bridges than any city in the world, including Venice. Pittsburgh has one more bridge than Venice. It's mind-blowing. It's like 446. It's also known as the city of champions, but you would never know that right now by how the Pittsburgh Steelers are playing. So I've picked on my hometown. Let's talk about Philadelphia. Let's talk about the city of brotherly love. And it's, I'm not talking about the city that lives, that's 30 miles from here. Philadelphia is actually in scripture. We find it right here. Lo, um, a sincere brotherly love. Brotherly love right there. That's Philadelphia. The Greek word Philadelphia is in our text. And I want to talk about Philadelphia. I got you there. Ha. Ah. So let's talk about Philadelphia. The name comes from the Greek. It means city of brotherly love. And, and like, but actually talking about the city that's 30 miles away, sometimes it's called the city of a brotherly shove. It's pretty clever. It really is clever. And, I, and to use that as a metaphor, that's actually how many experience the church. The church is meant to be the city of brotherly love, but many experience it to be the city of a brotherly shove. And so what we are looking at here today as we look at Peter, Peter has a very central idea that I want us to consider. He is telling us that the church is unique, that the church, that our life together is unique. It is different. It has a qualitative difference from other communities around us. But the one thing to, to note about this entire letter that Peter's writing, he's not, throughout the entire letter, he never uses the word church once. This is something I shared with you two, uh, two weeks ago as we just got started. He uses the word elect, and that's how many apostles did in, in their letters. But he also, as we'll see this next week, he uses language that you are the new Israel. You are the, the new people of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But so what's central to Peter is that he is, he's not talking about the church that we are right now. He's not talking about the church as a gathered assembly of God's people. He's talking about God's people. He's talking about what our lives as Christians are like in our everyday lives. But he's talking about our life together every single day of the week. So he like so what, in other words Peter has this massive massive vision for the Christian life that extends well beyond Sunday morning at 10:30. He's talking about our everyday life. And so as as he is telling us that the church is a unique community, it extends beyond Sunday mornings. And so I want to, but I really want to lean into this entire idea of what makes the church different. What makes the people of God different from other people, from other communities, from other groups? So let's just dive into this. Because the first thing we see is that we are born again. We are born again. That's, that's our first answer to this question of what makes the church different. The first answer is we are born again. And we see this. This is actually a theme that Peter is developing, jumping back to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. Then jumping now to verse 23, which we've just read. Since you have been born again, 
So all of a sudden, here's Peter lying, he's, he's putting down a theme that we are born again. We, like, so we as God's people, this, this is what Peter's doing here. Peter is reminding God's people who are exiled for their faith, he's reminding us that we are rescued by Jesus, that we are chosen by God, that we are perfected by the Holy Spirit. We are God's family. We are God's family. And this is a deliberate illusion. Right now, as he, Peter's using this word born again. This is a deliberate allusion to Jesus' own words in John 3 when, he, when Jesus is talking with the religious teacher Nicodemus. Jesus says, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Peter is remembering Jesus' words. These words have shaped and formed Peter's mind in a, in a very incredible way. But as we begin to think about this term, born again, I want to point out that this term has lost its significance in our world today. For example, a few years ago, this is um, in the early 2000s, so this is, uh, I think, like 15, 16, 17 years old. The Barna organization did a statistical study entitled this, born-again Christians are just as likely to divorce as non-Christians. And the simple idea right there is that right here is this phrase, born-again, and it's used as an adjective. It's used as a modifier. It's, so when people are using this, this phrase, like in this sense, they're, the conclusion even of that study is that you do not expect Christians to be any different from anyone else. You don't expect Christians to do be different. But as we think about Jesus' words, however, Jesus isn't casual about this whatsoever. He is very insistent. He's very emphatic on this point. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So here are the weight of his words. Because let's just be very clear. These are the most offensive words Jesus ever said. He is saying that you're not born right. Think about it this way. When children are born, so let's, let's make this really personal. So like in six weeks, whenever like small fry Schmipperger is born, and you don't come and see us, or we don't bring him to church, you're going to be like, oh, he looks amazing. He looks great. Um, imagine saying to, 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 to us, like, you know, this kid is not right. He looks kind of funny. He needs to be born again. Just think about it that way. Imagine saying to newborns and parents that the, this newborn, this lovely child is not right. There's something wrong with them, so you need to be born again. That is what Jesus is saying. There is something deeply wrong with us. Every single one of us are sinners and we're self-centered people. We are prone to break everything that we touch. We're prone to mess our relationships up. So think about your own life. Think about your own life. What grudges do you hold? How do you lie? How do you hold back truth? How do you pretend? How do you put on masks? How are you envious or jealous about someone else's life? When was the last time you spoke about another person behind their back? Not with the intention of honoring them, but to tear them down. We need to be honest with ourselves because each and every single one of us have done these things. Memories should come to us of the last time we have done those things. Peter tells us, in fact, that we need to put them off. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and, all, and deceit 
hypocrisy and, and envy and all slander. Peter is telling us to put them off. So what Peter is telling us is that he's telling us that we are born again. Because we are born again, because of what Jesus has done in our lives, we need to put these things off. And so coming back to this phrase, born again, let's understand what this means biblically. Two weeks ago, I shared with you the theological word is, is regeneration. And to be born again is incredibly dramatic. It is nothing less than the supernatural creation of new spiritual life in your own life. New breath fills your lungs. So when we sing, it's your breath in our lungs that we sang earlier. When we sing that, it's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, filling our lungs, giving us breath that we can worship and sing God. To be born again means that new purpose fills your days. Because of this one thing that the Holy Spirit has done of giving you this new birth, of regenerating your heart, everything is different in your own life. That's why Peter is able to say, put them off. You are able to put these things off because of what Jesus has done upon the cross for you and what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and your heart today. We are able to put them off to stop doing them because we have an entirely new life, an entirely new nature within us. God is the one who does this in our lives. And, but what Peter's also pointing out is that we are also, God does this in our lives through his word. And this is going to bring us to our second point. So if you think about the big question, how is the church different? We are born again. The second answer is that we are story formed. We are story formed. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Right here, Peter is quoting Isaiah 40. And this is a text that he goes on to quote uh, a few more times throughout uh, this letter. And, the, he, and this is what Isaiah 40 says. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He's quoting Isaiah. And, and he's quoting Isaiah because the Christians it, that Peter is writing to did not have the entire Bible that we have today. As we have the Bible today, we have the, the 66 six books of the Bible, uh, which includes the Old Testament, the New Testament. But these Christians in Peter's day did not have the entirety of the New Testament. They had portions of it. If you actually go to the end of 2 Peter, uh, Peter actually quote Paul's writings, or he alludes to Paul's writings at the end of uh, 2 Peter 3.16. But what we see right here is that the, the only word of God that these exiled people had was the Old Testament and the gospel that was preached to them. That's it. They didn't have the rest of the New Testament. But here's the point of all this. If you want to experience new life promised to you through Jesus Christ... You can only get it through God's word. You can only experience the new life that is promised to you by Jesus Christ through his word. And it's not just the New Testament. And I say that because there's this idea in our popular Christian world that like, well, let's just focus on the words of Jesus. Like, let's focus. And if you have a Bible, and sometimes Jesus' words are in red letters. And so the idea is like, hey, let's, Jesus' words are more important than the rest of the New Testament. And the New Testament is more important than the rest of the Old Testament. But what Peter is saying here is that God's word is 
what changes you? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the entire Old Testament is what changes you. And so if you look at Peter's argument in this letter, like going back to last week very specifically in 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12, and looking at this passage, we have this incredible picture. Because in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 12, he's actually talking about the word of God as well. In those verses, this is what Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you. What I'm pointing out to you right now is that everything the prophets prophets inquired about, everything the apostles witnessed is for you. They, they inquired, they prophesied, they witnessed, they wrote these things so that you would have life. They, so that you would very specifically experience the new birth that is promised by Jesus. Everything in the entire Bible is, is for you. So what this means is that we do not read the Bible simply to fill our minds with information, but we read Scripture to change our hearts. We do not read the Bible to be informed, but to be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus. This is what Scripture is meant to do. We read Scripture to stir our hearts. And we read Scripture to stir our hearts so that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what Peter is reminding us in 2 verse 3. We read Scripture to taste and see that the word that the Lord is good. And that right there, the goodness of the Lord, is the spiritual milk that we drink so that we would grow. That is, is God's word that t- tells us about the goodness of God, and that's the milk. That is supposed to be our diet as Christians. That's the food we, dr- we eat. That is the drink we drink so that we would grow and be transformed. And when I and being honest with you, that I ha, when I look at my own life, there is a correlation between the moments that where I feel spiritually dry, when I feel susceptible uh, to uh, uh, not susceptible, we're always susceptible, but when I experience spiritual warfare, and when I also experience spiritual weakness, it's because I do not abide in God's word. There's a correlation there. That, and I suggest, and I want you to look in your own life, that when you feel spiritually dry, is it because you're not engaging in Scripture? If you do not feel the nearness of God, is it because you are not abiding in God's Word? Or if you're looking at your life and you're seeing uh, sin and more sin and more sin, and you are recognizing that you are giving in to temptation, is it because you are not abiding in God's Word? Because what Peter is telling us is that when we are abiding in in God's word, we're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's when we are abiding in in God's word that we are story formed. We're going to look at our lives and we're going to be living under a different story than our neighbors in the world around us. And so we need to be shaped by the gospel. We need to be formed by God's word. This is the means through which the Holy Spirit uses to create new life in our hearts. Because it's through God's word that our lives are different from others. So here, here's, here's a quote for you. This is from a, a book that I love. It's called Everyday Church. It's by these two Brits, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. And this is what they say. 
The Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. The church is not a happy byproduct of our salvation or a convenient help to individual Christians. Instead, we are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful word that takes men and women who are lovers of themselves and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into people who love God and others. The church is the living proof that the death of Jesus was not just a vain expression of God's love, but an effective death that achieved the salvation of a people who now love one another from a sincere, who now love one another sincerely from a pure heart. And this is bringing us to the the third answer, the third point to this question. Because the entire purpose of our salvation, the entire purpose of being born again, the entire purpose of of, of being story formed is to love one another. And that's the third answer. How is the church different? We love one another. The obedience that Peter calls us to is not the basis for our life of God. The obedience that he's calling us to is actually proof that we do know God, that we have life with him. And so what this means is that the church is qualitatively different from other communities, and it's centrally marked by our love for one another, a sincere and brotherly love. This is where Peter's bringing up Philadelphia. The church is meant to be Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so as he says this, love one another from a, love one another from a pure heart, love one another earnestly. Once again, Peter is quoting Jesus. This time, not from John 3, but from John 13. And this is, in the larger context, this is part of, one of the things that Jesus said during the Last Supper. So these are some of the last words that Jesus said to all his disciples who were together before Jesus died upon the cross. And this is what Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I just want to point out, Jesus said this three times in two verses. Love one another, just as I loved you. You are to love one another. People will know you're my disciples because you love one another. And so both Jesus and Peter are highlighting that our love is central to our witness in this world. All people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And so Peter uses, uh, highlights this differently using different language. He uses the word sincerely and earnestly to describe this love. The love that Christians are meant to have for one another is not an empty gesture. They're not supposed to be vain or empty words. They're actually supposed to be, yes, words, but also backed up with action and and. They're supposed to be backed up with our actions. So that if people look at our church community, they will see that us actually saying we love you, that we love one another. They'll see words like that being shared, but also we'll be able to back them up with our own lives and actions for one another. It will be sincerely because it will be in earnest. And that's what Peter is talking about. That love is supposed to be both in word and deed. To one another. Our love for one another is meant to be wholehearted and, in fact, all-consuming in our life together. So earlier, as I, as I'm, I, 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 did, I, I told you that the church is meant to be the city of brotherly, brotherly love, 
the reality is that we fail to do this. And our failure, and this is what I meant earlier, when that some people experience the church to be a city of a brotherly shove. Like we fail to love one another well. That is the honest truth. That is the honest truth. And our failure is actually used to undermine faith in Jesus Christ. Just think about this. How many people in Westchester are ex-Christians? How many are de-churched? Or how many are actually anti-Christian and anti-Jesus because they did not experience the culture that Jesus is describing for us? Because they did not experience the culture that the gospel is meant to create? How many people do you know who are non-Christians because the church has not been a loving body? Just think about that. Ray Ortland asks this very question in his book. This, asks, this question is the reason why he wrote this book. The book is called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. But he goes on to point this out, that the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. If a church's gospel culture has been lost or it was never built, then the only remedy is to be found at the feet of Jesus. We must go to him in humility and openness and honesty. In fact, earlier this week I was asked a question uh, as I was uh, a panelist at Crew, uh, which is a Christian uh, ministry organization on campus at Westchester University. But the question that was posed to me is that, what would you say to someone who, who thinks that the church is only for those who have their acts together? And as I've been thinking about this question, the reality is that when you look at Jesus' words, he is, saying, he is saying that I have come to seek and to save the lost, that I am a friend of sinners, that I have come to the, for those who are weary, for the, and to, for those who are weary, I will give them rest. The reality is, is that Jesus comes for those who are weary and tired, Jesus comes for those who are lonely and need friends. Jesus comes for, for all of us because we are a broken people. And so the reality is, is that the answer to that question is that the church is actually supposed to be very broken, very messy, because we are following Jesus and we are experiencing the rest and the life and the friendship that he promises us. And because that's because Jesus came to seek, to save the lost, to, to befriend sinners, to heal the blind. And God actually intends the church to be a place for skeptics to ask questions, for seekers to draw near to God, and for the, the religious to experience grace and to experience the joy of grace in their daily lives. And the truth is, that's messy. But for us to become that kind of church, we also have to put away deceit and to stop pretending we have our acts together. And this is actually literally what Peter is saying in, in chapter 2, verse 1. He brings up hypocrisy, and that w Greek word literally means put on masks. Peter is telling us to take your mask off, to start being real, to start being genuine, to be authentic with one another. Our, our bulletin reflection inside your, your worship guide is from a, a professor and pastor named Zach S. Wine, and I loved it when I saw this. But this is what he said. We do not have to use church as a means of trying to prove something to God or to keep up appearances. We are already known. 
Our evils have been found out. Our denials are less and less interesting. Clean and humble truth about God and about us is taking center stage. We are made quiet in the presence of a vibrant storyteller, an intimate lover, a merciful knower of our worst moments. You see, friends, if we're going to be the different kind of community that Peter's talking about, when we are that type of different community, we are going to attract and win people to Jesus. And that is because the new birth is visible, where we are going to be uh, putting down our masks, where we are talking openly about our lives, because we have nothing to prove to one another. We have nothing to prove to God, and that is because Jesus Christ has lived and died for you. That Jesus Christ, when he lived and died for you, he is the one who actually secured righteousness and perfection for you, and he gives it to you. And so when Eswine is saying that clean and humble truth about God and about us is taking center stage, what he is just pointing out is that God is that he's pointing out that we are here today because we are a great sinner and God is a great savior. That is the clean and humble truth about God and about us that's taking center stage. We're here because God is gracious and we are sinners. So return to the question that I originally asked, what makes the church different? The answer to that question rests on the, the, the gospel. And it is the good news that was preached to you. And the gospel is that you are born again. That you are full of new life because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And friends, if you lean into that truth, when you lean into the, your new birth, by leaning into scripture, you will find yourself becoming a different person. It will be, you'll find yourself becoming the person whom God always intended you to be. And that is possible because Jesus died upon the cross for your sins. And the Holy Spirit is working in your life so that we would see our, our own lives transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. Let's pray.